Please open your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. When Don and I were working out the pulpit schedule over this period, and he let me know that he'd be away these five uh, times, and then I looked at what was next in Mark, I was real excited because of the progression from the Lord opening the ears of the deaf, dealing with the hard hearts of his disciples, opening the eyes of the blind man, then Peter's confession and the Lord's instruction, and now culminating in this passage describing the transfiguration of Christ, Christ being seen in his glory. And that's where we are tonight. And on Sunday, we look forward to having our pastor back with us, and he'll be resuming uh, his work here in the pulpit. So looking forward uh, to that. Mark 9, and I'm going to read the passage tonight, beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Well, this passage is profound in its range and in its simplicity. Here we see Christ as the centerpiece of all Scripture, and yet the description of this event occupies just a few short verses. Leading up to this event, Peter, remember, confessed Christ as the Messiah in chapter 8 and verse 29. And after Peter confesses Christ, there's a progression of instruction that occurs. 
Jesus, first of all, teaches that he must suffer and die, and he's dealing with the presuppositions and the assumptions of the disciples. Then Peter rebukes him, and the Lord corrects Peter in his misunderstanding and his resistance to the teaching of Christ and identifies that what he is doing, he's becoming a mouthpiece of Satan. After that, Jesus explains what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple, to take up your cross, to deny yourself and to follow him. And then now we come to this point where three of the, of the disciples experience a taste of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage that we're looking at tonight is knitted with what has proceeded by verse 1, as Jesus predicts that some who are standing there will see, get a taste of the kingdom of God and its power. And then immediately we're told, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John to this mountain, to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. The disciples need to listen to Christ. They've struggled with that to this point in multiple occasions. And even after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus rebukes them and identifies that they're slow to understand, slow to perceive, hard of heart, having eyes they don't see and having ears they do not hear. And then, of course, Peter, in his response to Jesus' teaching, rebukes him He hasn't learned to listen. The disciples need to listen to Christ. They have inaccurate presuppositions. They have inaccurate assumptions concerning who Jesus is, concerning the work of Christ, concerning what it means to follow Christ. And although Jesus has laid out very clearly in the previous passage what it means... They're going to be slow to understand still as the gospel of Mark will unfold. Jesus will repeatedly instruct them about the cross. Repeatedly. We're in chapter 9. If if you look over at verse 30 and verses 30 through 32, Jesus again teaches his disciples, and in verse 31 he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And what follows is evidence of their misunderstanding of what's taking place. And then over in chapter 10... Again, in verses 32 through 34, as they're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking with them, and He's talking to the twelve. And in verse 33, He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And what's the response? Well, James and John want the best seats in the kingdom. They're not getting it. 
And at the end of Jesus' correction of their thinking there, we find in verses 43 and 40 through 45, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples needed to listen to what Jesus said. They needed to understand the fullness of his work. And what we're, what we're entering into this evening in this passage of the transfiguration is an emphasis on their need to listen. It's so emphasized that a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. We've kind of loosely titled the five messages culminating in this one, Spiritual Understanding. True spiritual understanding comes only as you listen to Christ. True spiritual understanding comes only as you learn to understand all of Scripture in light of the preeminence of Christ. Spiritual understanding is not something that's rooted in an emotional experience, going forward, surrendering, etc., and so on. It's not rooted in, a, in some kind of an emotional experience that leads to some kind of subjective discernment apart from revelation. Spiritual understanding is rooted in the revelation of Jesus Christ and as the Spirit of God works in our hearts to understand the truth of the Scripture, then we're able to grasp spiritual things. Spiritual understanding only comes through a divine work giving clarity, clarity in the Scriptures, and clarity about the Christ of Scripture. And that's what we've seen leading up to this point. Jesus opens the ears of the deaf. He opens the hard hearts and he opens the eyes of the blind. We need his work to understand his preeminence, to understand the fullness of what he has accomplished. And yet spiritual understanding is not something that's going to happen all at once. Right when we come to Christ initially, sometimes we, you know, we come to Christ and and we're so excited about the things of the Lord. We've we've been dead in trespasses and sins, and now we're alive in Christ, and the Bible is making sense for the first time ever. We see the glories of Scripture, and and we're overcome with gratitude for what God has done. And then and then sometimes as as we're in that. In that season of joy, we come across passages of Scripture and think, well, what does that mean? Well, this is where the truth of, the, of our progressive growth is important. Remember, we were dead in trespasses and sins. God made, made us alive. He gave us ears to hear. He gave us eyes to see. But when we come to Christ, we're babes in Christ. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot of maturing. There's a lot of, a, a lot of truth that, that we need to learn from the Scripture. And there's a progressive work that God does in our lives, just like He's doing here in the lives of the disciples. They left all to follow Him in Mark chapter 1. 
Yet here in chapter 8, they're confessing Christ, but they're completely missing the whole mission of what Jesus is doing. There's a progression that's taking place in their understanding and, and will continue to take place. Even as you look at Peter and follow Peter through the New Testament, right? Sometimes he does great, like on the day of Pentecost, and other times he does horrible, like when Paul has to confront him to his face in Galatians chapter 2 because he won't eat with Gentiles anymore. He's growing, he's learning, he's failing, he's repenting. We need the continued work of the Spirit of God to increase our capacity to understand the things of the Lord. We need to constantly be listening, listening to the Son. The theme of the passage this evening is taken from that central statement that is made in verse 7 when the cloud overshadows them and a voice comes out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to the glorious son of God. Listen to the glorious son of God. And tonight as we work through this passage, we're going to see the glory of Christ revealed We're going to see the victory of Christ guaranteed, and then we'll conclude with the authority of Christ applied. The glory of Christ revealed, the victory of Christ guaranteed, and the authority of Christ applied. Listen to the glorious Son of God. Our ability to understand spiritual things, our ability to grow in the Lord, our ability to live for the glory of God rest on listening to the Son of God. So let's first of all consider the glory of Christ revealed from verses 2 through 8. After these six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John, these three disciples that often were set apart by the Lord for unique experiences and it's you know, when you think about these three, Peter would preach the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. He would also bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. He wrote two important epistles. James was martyred for Christ according to he, Acts chapter 12. And then think about what John did. John wrote the Gospel of John, which is all about the glory of Christ. We beheld His glory, John says. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and Revelation. These men had important roles to play as revelatory agents, authoritative revelatory agents of Christ in expounding the significance of who Jesus was and James and dying as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. So these men are taken up with Jesus to the high mountain. Luke tells us that they're praying, Jesus is praying, and as is usual, Peter, James, and John are kind of sleepy actually at the time. But while they're on the mountain... 
Mark simply says he was transfigured before them. He was transformed. And what did that look like? Well, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew and Luke both indicate that Christ's face shone with brightness as well. It was an overwhelming brightness. And what we're seeing here in this description is the personal glory of Christ. The transfiguration of Christ manifested the glory of His person. It manifested who He was. And and we need to understand that Jesus did not become glorious at this moment. Jesus was glorious. He is glorious. His glory was simply veiled in His humanity. But at this moment, in the providence of God and for the instruction of these disciples, that that veil was lifted and, and the fullness of the glory of Christ shone through from within Himself. This was who He is. And as a clarification, we need to understand that Jesus... Jesus is the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity. He is God. He is the God-man. He did not become God. He did not become glorious at any point in His earthly ministry. He has always been the Son of God. He has always been deity. John Chapter 1 and verses 1 through 18 in that prologue makes this clear. You can't get around John's language and come to any other conclusion than that the word, than that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were created by him. Right? He was eternally existent as the second person of the Trinity. If you want some other passages to jot down, Hebrews 1.3 describes Christ as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He is the final revelation of God because He is the exposition of God, according to John 1.18. And in Him, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells. And in this moment of transfiguration, the glory of Christ is revealed. It is seen by the disciples. And just to, again, make sure that we understand the significance that Jesus did not become glorious, that He did not become God, the word that's transfigured, uh, the word translated transfigured here as it relates to Christ means that the, the form, the veil was lifted so that the disciples could see the glory of who he was. In contrast to that, when the word occurs a couple of times in the epistles, in Romans 12, 2, we're to be transformed in the spirit of our minds, or in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, right? the transformation that's taking place is very different. It's not that 
what we are is being revealed, it's that we're being changed. Our character is being changed. Our thinking is being changed. How? As we behold the glory of the Son of God, as we behold the glory of Christ, as we behold the unchanging glory of the unchanging second person of the Trinity, we ourselves are transformed and and progressively grow in our sanctification from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And, you know, there's just an important uh, interpretation principle in here that you can't just do a word study and, and, and come to theo- theological conclusions based on word studies. If you did that based on this word transformed, you would either conclude that Jesus was changed from something that he was not to something that he became, or if you went the other way, that, that we are not changed, we're always some form of deity, Both are theologically and spiritually disastrous, right? And so when we we read Scripture, when we interpret Scripture, we have to let the context and we have to let the whole body of Scripture inform our interpretation of the specific words within specific passages so that we come to a right and harmonious understanding of, within the whole revelation, the body of the whole revelation of the Scripture. The personal glory of Christ is revealed. He was transfigured and he became radiant. His clothes became radiant. It's the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament, but in other Greek literature it describes the brightness of heavenly bodies. It's an overwhelming radiance. And Mark further on describes that his clothes were whiter than white, whiter than you could imagine, whiter than any bleach could make them. And so the disciples see this glory, this glory of the Son of Man. And remember in verse 1, Jesus promised that there were some that would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God is tied up entirely in the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples witness the glory of that power here on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was a foretaste of the glory that would yet come at the resurrection of Christ and at the ascension of Christ, and then is still yet to come when Christ returns. There's a nature of progressive revelation that's taking place here. Jesus promised the Son of Man at the end of of chapter 8, the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. That's going to be the culminating day. But in the meantime, in preparation for that and for his disciples to to understand the fullness of his glory, they get to witness the kingdom of God with power in the very person of Jesus Christ as he's transfigured before him, before them. And so again, we're we're coming we're coming right up against really important principles of, of interpretation. When you look at scripture, 
and interpret Scripture, particularly Scripture that relates to the end times prophecies and, and prophecies of the Old Testament and how they relate to Christ. The principle of progressive revelation is so important. Much of what the Gospels say, including, including Jesus' sermon at Olivet, is a compressed statement of what is further expanded in the New Testament. And this has taken place since Genesis 3, when Jesus promises that the seed of the woman will, will conquer, will, will crush the head of the serpent. Right, He was giving a statement, but then through the Old Testament, there's progressive building and progressive revelation about that until it's fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And the same is true as we continue through the Scriptures and even read Jesus' statement about His return. He makes statements in the Gospels that are compressed, that are not filled out until we get to the epistles and Revelation. And so even in this statement, yes, there's an ultimate day when Christ returns with the glory of His Father and the angels, and yet there's a taste of that here and now for the disciples that some of them are experiencing a part of that glory as they see Christ transfigured before them. The personal glory of Christ. But within this revelation of the glory of Christ, we also see the prophetic testimony of Christ. We've seen the personal glory, but now the prophetic testimony. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Have you ever, you know, you know what you're supposed to do when you don't know what to say? Right, Peter hadn't learned that yet. What's taking place here? Well, Moses and Elijah appear with Christ. And according to Luke's account, they're discussing his exodus from Jerusalem. They're discussing his crucifixion, his coming death and sacrifice. So apparently, Elijah and Moses are aware of what Jesus has come to do. And they've, they've appeared here and they're, and they're speaking, they're talking with Jesus, right? This is not just an apparition. These men who have died appear in some form of, of glory, of their glorious renewed bodies, and, and they're having a conversation with the Lord of glory. The foremost of the prophets witness the one of whom they prophesied. This is just astounding, and again, in its simplicity, but then when you think about it, the, the significance and the mind-blowing nature of what is taking place here. Moses, he, he taught, he preached, he wrote about Christ and, and what he wrote. Elijah did the same thing. Peter tells us that explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 1. And they didn't know who Christ was at the time. They fulfilled their role. They obeyed their God. They went to glory. And yet now here they are speaking with Christ, talking about the fullness 
of the fulfillment of the things that they prophesied. What a conversation that would have been. It's kind of a foretaste probably of our conversations in heaven. What are we going to be filled with in heaven? We're going to be filled with all of the glory of Christ. We're going to understand the significance of what Christ has done like we never have before, even though we do have the fullness of revelation of Scripture. It'll be overwhelming. Infinite redemption from an infinite Savior recorded in the Word of God, the testimony of an infinite God. Moses predicted that a prophet would come like him in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Elijah called the nation to obey the law. Both men represented the combined weight of the law and of the prophets, all of which testified about the coming of Christ. And both of these men experienced in unique ways the glory of God. Moses spoke face to face with God, and when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because of the resplendent glory from, from being in the very presence of God. Elijah spoke with God, heard God's voice, and at the end of his ministry, you remember, Elijah did not die. He was taken up to heaven by chariots of fire and horses of fire right in the presence of Elisha. These men experienced the glory of God in unique ways, but now they see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and they're talking with their Savior. And as this is taking place, Peter recognizes that this is a significant moment. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. You know, and, and we give Peter probably a, a rightfully hard time about what he says next, but at least he recognizes it's good to be there. He recognizes this is significant. But within that recognition, he misinterprets the meaning. He suggests an elongated meeting. This is great. We're with the Messiah, and we're with Moses, and we're with Elijah. Let's stay here. Let's build some tabernacles. I don't want this to end. Right? You've heard of the mountaintop experience? This is the ultimate mountaintop experience. They went up to the mountain. They saw Christ. Elijah and Moses come down. There's glory all around. They're talking about the things of the Lord, and and Peter's all about it. Let's stay. But he's missing the significance. This is a preparatory event, not a permanent state of being. It's preparing he and the other disciples for what is to come. It's preparatory in the life of Christ and his fulfilling all righteousness. It's not a permanent event. But it says in verse 6, you you think about this. This is not just, want to be careful to just not make this a, let's go have a chat around the fire. This is glorious. And verse 6 tells us that he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Here's the glory of Christ, the Messiah that he has confessed as King of kings and Lord of lords, standing before him with Moses and Elijah, men that have been dead for centuries. 
The question arises, how did he know who they were? And the answer is, we don't know. Were there introductions? I don't know, but you know, this is a this is an event of revelation. So in some way they knew that this is Moses and Elijah. And, you know, again, just think about what it would be like to, to be in the presence of the glory of the Lord with people who have been dead for centuries, now alive and talking. They were terrified. They were filled with fear. And he's doing the best that he can. But there's another element of within this prophetic testimony. Here are these men who are the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophets and the lawgiver. And the reality is that the roles of Peter, James, and John as the authoritative revelatory agents of Christ, those that will then preach Christ and establish the the church and fill out the doctrine of the Lord Jesus, the roles of Peter, James, and John mirror the roles of Moses and Elijah and the other prophets. Moses and Elijah and the other prophets, they prophesied about Christ coming. Now he's here. And now here's the three of the 12, the three leaders of the 12, the the apostles that are commissioned to, to preach Christ and to establish the church. And And so the the Old Testament prediction and and the coming of the New Testament church age are all in one place, all in the glory of Jesus Christ. One set predicted and the other will proclaim the completed work of Christ. The glory of Christ is revealed. We see his personal glory and his personal transfiguration. We see the prophetic testimony to Christ. But then as we move into verse 7, Peter speaks unwittingly. And the response to those words, a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Here is the paternal witness to Christ. The personal glory, the prophetic testimony, and the paternal witness to Christ. This is my son. Listen to him. In response to Peter's poor choice of words, the cloud of the Shekinah glory descends on the mountain. And again, when you work through the Old Testament, a cloud and smoke and fire consistently represent the the glorious and yet mysterious presence of God. In Exodus, a cloud of pillar went before the Israelites. That was a, a cloud went before them during the day and a pillar of fire by night. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, a heavy cloud and smoke and and fire descended from God and there were thunderings and lightnings. When the tabernacle was established, the Shekinah glory came to dwell there. And even when Isaiah sees his magnificent vision of the Lord in chapter 6, there's a cloud and fire and smoke representing the glorious presence of God. The cloud represents the overwhelmingly greatness of God. 
And yet his incomprehensibility to man, it's impossible for us to fully comprehend the infinite God of heaven. All we see witness to him all around creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Our conscience bears witness that there is a God and understanding basic morality, but the full comprehension of the infinite God is beyond us. He is shrouded in mystery. He is infinite and we are finite. And folks, it's, it's so important for us to recognize that when, when God reveals himself throughout Scripture in any kind of direct manner, a direct interaction with God undoes a person. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 27, Daniel has been receiving revelation about things to come. And Daniel says, I was sick. I was laid out for days. I couldn't function because of what I saw and heard from heaven. God is mighty and God is glorious and there is no man that can stand before the glorious presence of God. If it weren't so sad, it would be humorous that when people say, you know, God spoke to me, God talked to me, and then they lightly go on about how God supposedly confirmed their pre existing desires for what they wanted to do. That's an insult to the God of the Bible. When God speaks, you fall. When God speaks, you're undone. God is glorious. God is mighty. And to hear his voice is to fall on your face, is to be terrified. You know, this whole experience was terrifying for the disciples. Here in Mark, they're terrified before the, before the, the voice speaks from heaven And in Matthew, they're terrified after and they fall on their faces and they fall down so undone that Jesus has to speak to them and saying, do not fear and touch them and raise them up. The paternal witness as God descends in the Shekinah glory and yet in all his glory and all his majesty and all his mystery, God speaks, and he speaks in words that are understandable. When God speaks in his word, when God spoke to his prophets, when God spoke in sending his son, this self-revelation of God is gracious. He does not have to speak to us. He does not need us. He, if, if the fullness of who he is confronted us, we would be undone, and yet he speaks. He speaks. He reveals himself. He reveals his will. He reveals his desire through his word. He speaks through his prophets. He speaks in Scripture, and he speaks through his Son. And these are simple words. This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. But when you combine the record of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what is said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, my chosen one. Listen to him. What you find is that those words, those words resound from the law and from the prophets and from the Psalms. You can actually take specific references of Scripture to find to find these words. I'm just going to give them to you. We won't turn there tonight, but Deuteronomy 18:15. There's a prophet coming. Moses said, "Listen to him." Deuteronomy 18:15, Psalm 2:7, and Isaiah 42:1. Deuteronomy 18:15, Psalm 2:7, and Isaiah 42:1. These three passages, again, representative from the law, the Psalms, and the prophets are all intertwined and woven into Jesus or to the Father's statement bearing witness to his Son, the paternal witness to Christ. This is my Son. This is the essence of who I am. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. Listen. To him. Peter, listen to him. When he tells you that he will die and be resurrected, listen to him. And in that command, in the simplicity of the command of the Father, that command points to the fullness and the preeminence of Christ. Moses and the prophets had spoken. But the full significance of their words is found in Christ alone. This is my beloved son. Here in the presence of Moses and Elijah, listen to him. Listen to him. The command is clarifying and corrective. Well, the Lord gives his instruction, and then verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. As we consider the glory of Christ revealed, we've seen his personal glory, the prophetic testimony to his glory, the paternal witness of glory, and now simply the preeminence of Christ. Moses and Elijah back to heaven. Now the disciples standing here alone with Jesus only. Jesus only. The fullness of everything that was said previously is found in Christ and Jesus now stands alone with his disciples. He stands alone and from this moment he will be moving down the mountain and toward Jerusalem, toward his crucifixion toward the fullness of what he alone could accomplish in the work of redemption. The preeminence of Christ. Christ's work, or Christ remained to fulfill the work of redemption and obey the will of the Father. It is in Christ, not in Moses, not in Elijah, that all will be reconciled. 
Right? Are, are we beginning to see the, the importance and the significance and the profundity of this, of this passage? I mean, this truth that Christ is preeminent, this truth that Christ is all in all, not Moses, is, is going to be the very bedrock of what the writer of Hebrews argues for. Christ alone is preeminent. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 19 and 20 says this, For in Him, speaking of Christ, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by His blood on the cross. And that culminates the section that Paul begins describing the preeminence of Christ, that He is the head over all things. And as the head over all things, He's going to bring all things to reconciliation through Him and Him alone. Only in Christ is there peace with God. Moses and Elijah fulfilled their role. Christ would complete the work, and then the apostles would be commissioned to preach Christ crucified. This is my Son, Listen to him. Well, in verses 2 through 8, we've seen the glory of Christ revealed. In verses 9 through 13, we see the victory of Christ guaranteed. The victory of Christ guaranteed. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The disciples now head back to life and ministry without the glory. Well, without the visible glory. And as they're going down the mountain, Jesus gives them a very strong charge. Do not tell anyone what you have seen. And again, the reason for this prohibition, as has been the case in multiple instances throughout Mark, is that the fullness of his work is not yet understood. Jesus did not want the disciples bearing incomplete witness. Oh, Christ is here, the kingdom has come, we saw his glory. He did not want them bearing that witness until the cross had been completed. And so he prohibits them from telling anyone what they had seen. But, but look at what he says. Until, right? He, he makes this prohibition provisional. You will tell, but don't tell until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And of course, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. But here's the significance. Jesus made the prohibition, but, was it, but it was with absolute certainty that he was going to rise from the dead, that he was going to rise again, that he was going to defeat Death, And so when we, when we come into this passage, even as they're descending from this mountain, there, there's a note of victory and, and of certainty. 
The victory of Christ is guaranteed, and we see, first of all, his victory over death. Don't tell until I'm risen. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to be treated with contempt. I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to rise again. And when that happens, proclaim. Tell what you have seen. And so again, with, even within this passage, we're seeing notes, we're, we're seeing uh, little bits and pieces, foretaste of the kingdom of God coming with power. Here's the glorious Son of, of Man. You've seen His glory. You've seen what He is from the, from the inside out, His, His resplendence. And that's going to be witnessed yet again in, an, in another way when he rises again from the dead, when he defeats the power of death and sin, when the grave is empty. And then when he ascends to his Father. And of course, that rising from the dead means that he will die. And he'll raise the question, how is it written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He will die, but he will rise again. Christ's victory is guaranteed his victory over death and his victory over all. His victory over all. This is a really interesting portion of Scripture. As they're coming down in verse 11, you know, this question is resonating in their minds. He's going he's gonna to rise from the dead? That means he's going to die. But, but this is the Son of Man. This is the Christ. And we just saw, we, we just saw him in glory. We, we, we saw him with Elijah and the prophets. We, we were terrified at the at the glory of his presence, and he's gonna, he's gonna die, and you know, how does this, how does this fit with scripture? And they, their minds land on a teaching from the scribes concerning prophecies about Elijah. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And so what they're, what they're asking is, you know, the Scriptures talk about a coming day when Christ is going to be all in all. But there's a forerunner. Elijah's going to come. And, and so we're, we're not understanding, we're not understanding this idea of suffering when there hasn't been an Elijah. I mean, we saw Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, but this is not making sense to us, Jesus. How is, how is this all going to come together? Look at Jesus' answer, verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And in Matthew chapter 17, in the corresponding account, Jesus says, Elijah will come to restore all things. It's still a future event. It's a future event. 
So Jesus acknowledges that there's still an unfulfilled element to this prophecy of Elijah coming. But he then raises the, well, let me just pause right there for a moment. In his, in Jesus' acknowledgement that Elijah will come to restore all things, He's again acknowledging that there is a future day of full and final restoration in Christ. And this is one of those zip file statements that's not unpacked for us until later in the New Testament. There is coming a fullness of restoration. There is coming a restoration of Israel. All of that stuff is coming Christ's victory will be over all. The scriptures are not mistaken. When the scriptures speak of Christ rising again, that will happen. When the scriptures speak of Christ restoring all things, that will happen. Because Jeremiah said that for it not to happen would mean that the sun would stop rising. Right? If Israel is not going to be restored as a nation, if there's not going to be a reign of Christ, then the sun has to stop rising. Last time I checked, it's still rising. There will be a restoration of all things. And then Jesus brings the guarantee of victory to an understanding of the guarantee of Scripture. So he acknowledges, yes, there's a future restoration, but now let's think about the question you raised, disciples. Let's think about the question you raised about Elijah. You raised a scriptural question, but I'm going to ask you a question from Scripture. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay, disciples, you're, you're thinking about the restoration of all things because of what Scripture has said, but you're also skipping over something that Scripture has prophesied. The Son of Man will suffer. And there are plenty of references. Isaiah 53 is the most, probably the most commonly known that Christ will suffer. And so what Jesus, what Jesus is doing with his disciples, he's saying, look, you, you're reading the scripture and you're right in part. But you need to read the whole Bible, all your Bible, and you need to understand it in light of me and of my preeminence. Because the scripture says what I've been teaching you, the Son of Man will suffer and die. Now, back to your question, disciples. Look at the end of or look, verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Jesus goes with the authority of Scripture, the guarantee of Scripture. Scripture says the Son of Man will suffer, and Scripture prophesies a type of Elijah that will also suffer. Right? Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. 
Same thing is stated in Matthew. And what we find directly stated in Matthew's record is that John the Baptist fulfilled the type, the prophesied type of Elijah in his suffering, right? It says the disciples knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. It's right there in Scripture, right? So the first aspect of the fulfillment of Elijah was John the Baptist. And his suffering was a fulfillment of the type of Elijah that many commentators point to Jezebel's desire to kill Elijah. That was a type of the opposition that was going to be faced by the forerunner of Christ and ultimately carried out by Herod in the destruction of John the Baptist. And so what Jesus does here, he says, yes, you, you are understa- you're reading Scripture correctly. Elijah will come. But Elijah's coming has two, the, the type of Elijah's coming has two, two parts to it. The first part was fulfilled in the forerunner coming, John the Baptist, and in his suffering. And yes, Elijah will come for the restoration of all things, but Scripture has to be fulfilled. And like Scripture said that the Son of Man would suffer, there was a scriptural forerunner that would suffer, and that forerunner would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And when he came and when he died... He fulfilled, he fulfilled that role. Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased as it was written of him. And so disciples, in the same way that the, the suffering and the martyrdom of the forerunner took place, in that same way, the suffering and the death of the Son of God will take place. Scripture has guaranteed it. And so if the suffering will take place, so also will the resurrection. The victory of Christ is guaranteed, and it's guaranteed as the fulfillment of what is written. It could be no other way. Well, we've seen the glory of Christ fulfilled or revealed, the the victory of Christ guaranteed, and you know, just one, one other point of application. You know, I, I realize this is a Tuesday night. And I realize this is a really weighty passage for a Tuesday night. But I've, everybody's awake. I'm impressed. But let me, let me give us a couple of, of applications from what Jesus does with Scripture here. The disciples latched on to a difficult and less clear statement of Scripture, right? It was debated by the scribes. And what we need to learn from what Jesus does here is that difficult and less clear Scripture must always be interpreted on the basis of what is straightforward and clear. Right? The the what is clear and what is straightforward informs our interpretation of what is less clear. 
Anytime you build a theological system on something that is less clear, you're standing on, the, on a precipice of spiritual destruction. You bring in what is clear to inform your theological understanding of what is less clear. And the way that you do that is by first accepting the, author- the absolute authority of Scripture Everything Scripture says is true. It's right. It's authoritative. You accept the the authority of Scripture and then view it in light of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. When you accept the authority of, of Scripture and then view Scripture in light of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that will solve many seeming difficulties in Scripture. And that's exactly what takes place here. The disciples latch on to something that is less clear, and and Jesus says, look, you're right, Scripture is authoritative, but you need to understand it in light of the preeminence of who I am and the preeminence of the work that I came to accomplish. And when you understand Scripture in light of the preeminence of Christ, Many, not all, I mean, even Peter says there are parts that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. So not all, but many of the difficulties will be resolved. Well, I want to close tonight with just briefly with a a third point to recognize the significance of of this passage in the rest of the New Testament. And the third point is the authority of Christ applied. The authority of Christ applied. Remember that God the Father told the disciples, listen to him. Listen to him. And what we find is that in many passages of of the Scripture following the ascension of Christ, Peter got it. Peter got it. And if you turn to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, we could do this in many passages in Acts, but just arbitrarily more or less, choosing one here in Acts chapter 3. The passage runs from verse 17 through verse 26 as Peter preaches the gospel. He's essentially evangelizing the Jews. And there's so much in this passage that corresponds to what was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. But in verse 21, we'll just pick up there. Speaking of Christ, Peter writes, or Peter preaches, Christ is the one whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. All right, so a lot of things there. Christ is in heaven and Christ will be there until the fulfillment. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
Do you see the echoes from the Mount of Transfiguration? Listen to him. And Peter is now applying this as he preaches evangelistically. Jews, you need to listen to Christ. And he's applying the the reality that to reject Christ, to reject Christ is to reject him to the peril of your soul. Every soul that does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. Folks, the glory of Christ represented the fullness of the revelation of God and the person of Christ. And and your eternity, your eternity depends on whether or not you listen to him. And to not listen to him is to be destroyed. Peter applies the authority of Christ in his evangelism and then turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. Peter is writing believers. One of the themes of 2 Peter is that he's reminding believers, you need to be reminded of these things. And one of the things that he reminds them about is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. And we were with him on the holy mountain. And then look what he says. And we have something more sure. More sure? More sure than what you saw on that holy mountain? Yes, that was an experience. Oh, it was an important experience. It was an experience recorded in Scripture, but nonetheless, it was an experience, and we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing, that no, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter, as he's writing to encourage these believers in their sanctification, he reminds them, the Lord is coming And we got to see a foretaste of what that's going to be like on the holy mountain. We saw his glory. But believers waiting for Jesus Christ, even though our word is sure, even though we have that experience, know that you have a more sure word. You have the scriptures. You have the written revelation of God. And you must do well. You would do well to pay attention to that. This is your light. This is your land. This is the glory that you need to behold as you await for the appearing of the glory of the Son of God with his Father and with his angels. And one other passage 
Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. I've already referred to it once. But as Paul is writing of the old dispensation, the old covenant, and the glory that was associated with that, even so that Moses had to cover his face, he now reveals the glory of Christ. It describes the glory of Christ, that in Christ that veil is removed. And he culminates that, that section in verse 18 with these words. And we all, Peter, James, and John, three on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now, because of the finished work of Christ, because of the work of redemption, because of the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christ was transfigured. We saw, the disciples saw who He was. But as you and I, we all, as those in Christ, we all, Behold the glory of the Lord in the Scripture with unveiled faces, with clarity through understanding the preeminence of Christ. As we open the Scriptures and as we sit under the preaching of the Word of God week after week, Paul says, you're being changed from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so you're here on a Tuesday night. Why are you here on a Tuesday night? Well, my guess is you're here on a Tuesday night because you wanted to hear the Word of God preached because you want to come become more like Jesus Christ. And can I just encourage you that based on the promise of Scripture, that is exactly what is happening. That through the Word of God, through the power of the gospel, through the Spirit of God at work in you, you are being changed from one degree of glory to another. So where else would you want to be as you wait for the day when eternally you'll behold the glory of Christ? Father, thank You for Your revelation to us. We are so overwhelmed at Your glory and yet at Your kindness to send Christ. While we were still sinners, He died for us to redeem us, to give us access to You, to give us the Spirit of God, to understand the things of God and the Word of God. Uh, we are blessed beyond measure. And we give You thanks and we give You praise. We, we pray, Lord, that Your Word and that your Christ would grow more precious to us as we behold him in the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.